0: To the Ninja Lane podcast. In this episode, we talk about heatsink design and is more mass better than more surface area. We also speculate on Windows 8 and what Balmer has up his sleeve with the Microsoft Surface. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren McCain. This last month, I took my annual trek to Computex.
1: Computex. Now that's uh, that's the Vegas trip, right?
0: No, that happens in January. Computex is the large trade show in Taiwan. Oh. And that's where I get to meet with all my manufacturer friends and, you know, all my contacts that give me motherboard samples and video card samples. And get to see all the new tech that will be out around Christmas.
1: That sounds exciting. So what makes Computex so special? It's really the only trade
0: show that focuses entirely on computer hardware. You know, they go from motherboards and video cards, you know, finished products. Right. Down to that manufacturing of it. So you can see the SMC machines that, you know, the ones that spin around really fast and throw down the, the resistors and everything on the PCB. It started as a sales show for everybody. So that's where you could buy the manufacturing equipment. And now it's transitioned into kind of a show for all the stuff that they're going to be coming up for
1: later in the year. So I know that that part of the world has kind of become a hub, at least for consumer electronics manufacturing. But what takes you over there?
0: I go over there to meet with my manufacturing contacts, like I mentioned, and also to get a little bit of dirt on new technologies that they're including. Like, for instance, Gigabyte had the UD5, which is going to be a new MOSFET design. But the other thing (laughs) I do is, it's kind of my vacation, so afterwards I go and meet with some of my friends at the office. I do office visits, and one of the highlights this year was meeting with EVGA.
1: So I know we've seen a lot of really hot EVGA products here at Ninja Lane, but what made this trip so special?
0: I wanted to go and see the new Z77 for the win motherboard, and also meet with a world famous overclocker named Kingpin.
1: Now I know Kingpin sounds familiar to me, but for the folks that haven't heard that name, who's Kingpin?
0: He's a world famous US based overclocker out of Detroit, and he also runs a side business called Kingpin Cooling where he goes and makes GPU pots and CPU pots, and this is for dry ice and liquid nitrogen cooling.
1: Kingpin has been recognized not just as a overclocker, but also as an expert in some of these super cooling designs. So I'm anxious to hear what you learned.
0: Well, I was kind of talking to him about, you know, what his work was at VGA, and he sits down and he overclocks all the time, which is kind of interesting to me you know, 10 also works with him and you mm-hmm. get to see some of his little monster mods where he adds a, an extra PWM to a video card so they can overclock it. But then they go and take the Kingpin cooling pots and that's how they really test them, and bring the temperature down. At the same time, I started talking about my run for Moa and he said, well, what GPU pots were you using? I said, well, I got some, some Revia ones. And he said, oh yeah. And it's like, so what's kind of bad about that? And he says, well, That was kind of one of my older designs, and there's a reason I don't make it anymore. And I said, well, tell me, what was the reason? He says, well, with the GTX 680, you need to be able to control the temperature and bring it up and down as the system is booting. Otherwise, you'll run into cold bugs. And you can't do that with a pot that has a lot of mass. And that kind of made a lot of
1: sense to me. So if I'm understanding correctly, what we're talking about is... Really trying to keep the stable temperature is our normal train of thought, but with the 680 specifically, it's not enough to just control a stable temperature. You have to be able to move it up and down.
0: Correct. Now it's not like air cooling where we want to keep it within you know 30 degrees or 40 degrees. With liquid nitrogen, you have the opportunity to bring it down to negative 160, but then also bring it all the way back up to maybe 40 degrees centigrade. At that point, you're going to have you know water everywhere, but mm-hmm. that's that's kind of a side point.
1: Now, I've seen these pots in action, and I've worked with you before, and they seem pretty solid. So tell me what's different about these new pots.
0: It's one of his older designs. It's the, the Tech Nine Slim. Okay. And this design was originally created for the GTX 295. And if you remember, that was the board that had two GPUs on it, but right. it had two separate PCBs that were sandwiched together. And to be able to super cool that, you needed to have a really slim gpu pot that would slide in between the two cards right and that was where this tech nine came from it turns out that that design has a lot of surface area within it but it doesn't have a lot of mass you know obviously it's need to fit in between these two pcbs so it's going to be pretty small well it turns out that that particular design works well for the gtx 680 in that you can do one splash of liquid nitrogen in there and bring the temperature down almost instantly but then since it doesn't have a lot of mass, the heat from the GPU will heat the system back up. So you can kind of tend the pot, and make sure that it, as you're booting, it's at you know negative 100 or negative 50, and then as you go to run your benchmark, you bring it down to negative 150, and you can do that within a span of just a couple of minutes.
1: So I want to talk for the folks that haven't seen the pictures, which are on the Ninja Lane website, a little bit about what these things look like in their design. So what we're talking about is really a narrow, tall thin pot mm-hmm. with I mean really pretty smooth featureless design
0: it is and it's somewhat elegant in its design and then speaking with the wide fat pots or the slim fat pots that I that I bought for Moa
1: so so slim fat is sort of an oxymoron to me so <laughs> tell me a little bit more about that
0: okay the the design was so that the slim portion of it was so that you could run quad SLI on a standard motherboard. Okay. So you have that one PCI Express slot of space, and that pot would fit in between there. So right, it's a really right. slim pot. But he wanted to add more mass to it, so he made the pots really wide. Now, that makes the pots a little bit heavier, and actually quite a bit heavier than the Tech 9 Slim, but it also makes it react slower. So it's going to hold a lot more heat, like if you're going to be running on a GTX 580, for instance, which is a really hot chip.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's going to react a lot slower. It will hold temperature a little bit better. But since it's also slower, when you do a splash, it's going to take a little while to bring the temperature down. One of the discussions I had with Kingpin about my MOA run was that when I was running a benchmark, I had to pay special attention to when the benchmark started and when it ended. And the reason being is that when the benchmark starts, there's going to be a lot of heat generated from the GPU. Right. And if I don't get my splash of nitrogen at just the right point, then the pot can't keep up. So what will happen is it will overheat and I'll get past my temperature threshold. If I pour too soon, it'll get too cold and then I'll get below my temperature threshold.
1: Okay. I see. So it's important really to maintain the temperature during the peaks, not the valleys.
0: Correct. And a lot of times if the benchmark is going to end and I just done a pour, it's going to freeze and I won't be able to start the next, next benchmark. Mm -hmm. Now, Had I been using the Tech 9 Slim, that has a lot more surface area, a little bit less mass. I have to be a little bit more exact with my pores, but I don't have to watch it as much. I can start watching temperatures and not necessarily watch the benchmark. Because as it starts to rise, I can do a quick splash, and it's going to bring it down almost instantly. And that's really the benefit of having less mass and more surface area over a pot with more mass, like what I have.
1: It sounds like going forward, though you have to decide if you're going to continue on with your Slim Pots or look for something with more mass. So how does this whole discussion affect where you're going with your uh, superclocking?
0: That's really a good question because there's a lot of vested time and effort into what I have, and I kind of want to make them work. Right. But I also want to not be hindered by the design that I have. I kind of want to have a little bit of variety. So chances are what will happen is I'll end up getting a Tech 9 Slim from Kingpin, and kind of give that a shot and see what that does for me. And if that really is going to be the direction I want to go in the future, or maybe I just take the pots that I have down to the machinist and say, Hey, can you drill a couple more holes in here and try to remove some of the extra mass and add a little bit more surface area to the existing design?
1: All this discussion is super cooling has me thinking, how does this affect a normal Joe and the type of heat sinks that you'd buy off the shelf? Does the same thing apply?
0: The same thing applies almost directly. And kind of a good way to think about it is a pot of boiling water. Okay. Say you're going to make yourself some mac and cheese or some top ramen or something like that. And you get a small pot and you fill it up all the way with water. And you're going to put it on your stove and boil it. You know, one of the reasons that you pick a smaller pot is because it doesn't take so long to boil. Because there's not a lot of water in there. Now, say you pick a big, like a spaghetti pot and you fill it full of water. It's going to take a long time for that to boil. The spaghetti pot's a little bit larger, so it has a little bit more surface area, but it also has a lot more mass. You know, if you take the same spaghetti pot and only put a couple of inches of water in there, it's going to boil pretty quick, right? Right. Now, you pick a smaller pot, it's got a little bit less surface area because it's smaller, and then you put a little bit more water in there, it's going to take a certain amount of time to boil. Same thing, you take a little bit less water in there, it's going to
1: boil a little bit faster. So I think I get the concept. Maybe we can give some examples of how that affects heat sinks. Do you have uh, examples, maybe, of the type of heat sinks that would have a more mass or a more surface area design?
0: Yeah, well, we have the Cooler Master TPC-812, which is a more surface area design. If we go to the site and look at them, and I'll have a link in the show notes, this particular heat sink has six heat pipes, a large chunk of mass at the bottom, and also has a vapor chamber on top of those heat pipes.
1: So now hold on, if it has a large chunk of mass, wouldn't it be a more mass example?
0: In a way, yes it is, but then we have to look at the total design of the heatsink. And in this case, we have a lot more vehicles to get the heat off of the CPU, and we need to have a little bit more mass at the bottom to make all those heat pipes work well. So once that heat gets into the radiator, then we have a couple of fans on there to cool it off, and it acts as a normal heat sink. But the difference in this particular design is the vapor chamber on top. So so once the heat pipes get saturated, because there's a certain amount of heat that each one of those heat pipes can carry off of the heat sink, once those get saturated, the heat will move up into the vapor chamber, and that will whisk the heat away. In my review on the website, we have a standard heat test, and then we have an overclocked heat test. And the overclocked heat test actually had a better CW rating. It actually dropped, meaning that the heat sink was getting more efficient with the more heat that was being put into it instead of becoming
1: saturated. That sounds like a pretty good design, but can you give an example then of one that really is a more mass design?
0: Of course, we have the thermalrite Venomous X. On the surface, these two heat sinks are very similar. They both have six heat pipes. The Venomous X doesn't have the vapor chamber on it, but it makes up for that by having a little bit more mass at the base, a few thicker heat pipes, and also thicker fins.
1: So now you've used the term in the past, core contact.
0: Yes, the core contact, the the bane of heat sinks. But it's following another camp, which is a less
1: mass, more surface area. Can you give us a good example of the more mass, less surface area camp?
0: Certainly. We have another Cooler Master product, and I kind of hate to bag on them a little bit, but we have the Hyper 212.
1: Now, hold on. I've got a Hyper 212, and it's a good heatsink. It
0: is a good heatsink. It's a very good heatsink in a certain narrow band of cooling.
1: Okay. Explain.
0: The Hyper 212, the Evo, the latest one that they have, is a core contact design. It has four heat pipes, and they're all stuck together, and the heat pipes make direct contact with the CPU. That particular heatsink design reacts very, very quickly. It doesn't have a lot of mass down at the bottom. It's basically just the heat pipes. When you are running a Sandy Bridge system, for instance, at normal speeds...
1: Which I am. <laughs> well, I don't know about normal speeds. But... Well,
0: yes, yeah, slightly overclocked, I should say. When the system goes into idle, it powers down. It actually reduces the multiplier and it produces less heat. But then when you are doing something, like playing a game or you open up Photoshop or something like that, it's going to spike that CPU temperature just ever so slightly. Well, the core contact designs react really quick to this, and it will keep the CPU at a constant temperature within a certain range. So as you're opening up Photoshop, your CPU temperature is not going to go up very much. It might be two or three degrees. Now, when you start playing a game and you start really loading that heatsink up, the temperature is going to rise until it reaches the, the thermal barrier of that heatsink, and then it will just continue to rise, and it will never stop.
1: Well, that doesn't sound very good.
0: <laughs> no, it's not, and that's really one of the limitations of these inexpensive aftermarket heat sinks. You know, the Hyper 212 was designed to be a low-cost OEM replacement heatsink, something that's going to provide a little bit better cooling over the OEM design and give it a little bit more capacity. As you know, the, the OEM heatsink that comes with Sandy Bridge is a is a traditional finned heatsink with a fan on top. It has a limited heat capacity. It's just designed to keep the CPU within normal operating temperature for warranty purposes. The Hyper 212 is an inexpensive heatsink to replace that and give it a little bit more capacity and keep the CPU temperature lower. That's also why it's important to make sure that you match your CPU cooler with the type of system that you're building okay if you're going to be building a gaming system you're going to want to have a heat sink that's going to probably have a little bit more heat capacity so it keeps the temperature a lot lower it'll make the system a little bit more stable uh if you're overclocking you're going to want to have maybe a self-contained water cooling unit or a diy water cooling unit or a larger heat sink you know one with maybe dual towers or something like that or if you really are just building a system for to be quiet, something for your mom, something for your family member, something like that, you can go with the OEM heatsink or you can go with a low-cost OEM alternative like the Hyper 212 or something similar.
1: So there's a really huge range of prices and designs out there. How can I tell how effective a heatsink is?
0: That's where my testing of a heatsink kind of is a little bit different than what you would normally see out on the web.
1: Now, your testing at heat sinks is one of the things that I find really a strength of Ninja Lane, and I get really excited about it because there isn't really anything like it out on the web at all. No one else is doing this. So can you tell us you know, what you're trying to do here? How does it work? Well, the testing is
0: done in two parts. There's the standard temperature test, which is low temperatures at normal speed and then also at overclock speed. And then I test the ambient temperature, low temperature, voltage and whatnot to arrive at what I call a CW rating, or Celsius per watt. And that number tells us how efficient the heatsink is at removing heat at a given load.
1: So is the CW rating dependent on the build? What type of CPU, for example?
0: It's not directly tied to the build. The CW rating is a portable number that can be used in almost any situation. In my particular reviews, you can't take a a previous review and compare it with another one. You can't combine the numbers because there's, you know, ambient temperature differences and whatnot, but you can look at the CW number and that would be a constant between all of them. Heatsink manufacturers actually publish or they used to publish the CW number, but it's kind of fallen out of popularity with them. So you don't see that too often anymore.
1: Using the examples that we've talked about, the venomous and the TPC-812, how's their CW rating? The CW rating
0: is pretty similar between the two, but they're also a little bit different, and I'll kind of explain why. The TPC-812 follows the more surface area route, like what we discussed with the extra vapor chamber in there. Right. At stock speeds, it had CW rating that was average for a heat sink like that, but then when we started overclocking, the CW number went down, meaning that it got more efficient at removing the extra heat load. Okay. With the Venomous X, the number stayed the same between the normal and the overclocked speed. That meant that I hadn't quite reached the thermal barrier of that heatsink, and it was also removing heat at the same rate. So it hadn't got more efficient, but it hadn't got less efficient. So at this point, the Venomous X would be a great gamer and slight overclocking heatsink, whereas the TPC 812 might work pretty well for a higher power system or a higher overclock or if you're trying to get an air-cooled system with the performance of a water cooler, for instance.
1: So you mentioned water cooling, but we haven't really talked about the CW rating for a water cooling system. How would that compare? What's different?
0: The Do difference you- is with an air cooler, we have a direct heat transmission between the CPU to the heat sink to air. With a water cooling, we're going from CPU to water block to water to air. So we have an extra layer there. Water has a higher capacity at removing heat and also storing heat than air does. That's why we can get a little bit better performance out of it. Of course, water coolers have limitations, much like air coolers do. We have the power of the pump, we have the size of the hose, we have the liquid that's inside of it, we have the size of the radiator, and even how powerful the fans are. For instance, I tested the Thermaltake Water 2 And this is a self-contained water cooling unit. One has a larger radiator than the other. It's a little bit thicker, so it's going to have a little bit more water in it, which is also a little bit more mass. But they came with the same fans. Turns out that at stock speeds, these both tested the way you would think, where the one with the larger radiator had a lower temperature, could handle a little bit more heat. But then once you started overclocking, they tested the same, meaning that the one with the larger radiator got less efficient, and I deduced that since everything was the same, except for the size of the radiator, the fans were probably just not powerful enough to remove the heat out of there. It needed a little bit more
1: more power through. It sounds like maybe water is not always the best solution. What would be the perfect heat sink, you think, if I were to go out and buy one today? What's the perfect design if you could build your own? <laughs> the
0: perfect design for a heat sink. Now, that is an interesting question because there's a lot of different ways you can go. And some manufacturers have gone this way and, you know, kind of failed miserably at it. And some have actually worked. (laughs) But, you know, you have a hybrid water cooling system, which is maybe a dual fan radiator with a big pump and large hoses. But that's not something that you can buy off the shelf because it's not going to be very cost effective for them to build. You know, it's more of a DIY situation. So a DIY water cooling system, it has a lot of heat capacity. It also has a lot of additional cost. And a lot of work for you to put it into your case unless you're going to run it out on a test bench or something. Personally, that is what I would go for. It's not necessarily a heat sink in the traditional sense, but that's the cooling method that I choose when I get to choose.
1: I know not everybody's comfortable with do-it-yourself water cooling because, let's face it, it's a little daunting and it could leak or whatever. And I know it makes me a little nervous because I move my PC a lot.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of skill involved, that's for sure.
1: I know that there are also hybrid units out there. An example would be uh, the Coolit products, for example, or the Ultra, where you have a combination of the water cooling, the heat sinks, and the Peltiers and all that. Is that a a good alternative? It seems like there's a lot that can go wrong there.
0: There is a lot to go wrong there. And there is also a reason that they're not made anymore. Partially, one is cost, but Peltiers aren't terribly efficient. I mean, for instance... uh, the cooler design, what was the one that had the, the big fancy radiator with like six Peltiers in it?
1: Ah, oh, the Eliminator, yeah.
0: Yeah, that, I really liked the design of that cooler, but I didn't necessarily like how the transition between the water to the Peltier system to the fan actually worked. It seemed like too many stages. Mm-hmm. And all you got out of it was the chance to dial in your water temperature, where you could say, hey, I want to have it at 30C or I want to have it at 40C. All that does is really just changes the ambient temperature, which you can get with a good air cooler.
1: Dennis, it doesn't really sound like you've recommended, well, any specific heat sink design.
0: No, and I haven't. It's because there's not really a perfect heat sink design. There's just a heat sink for your particular purpose. I mean, you have the OEM systems that want to be quiet, and you don't necessarily need to have a lot of cooling. That's going to have maybe a core contact design or even an OEM heatsink design. And then you have the, the high-end gaming systems, which can also get by with a core contact cooler, provided you have good case ventilation or maybe a high-powered fan on there. Designs like the Venomous X and even the TPC-812 that we talked about, those are great all-around coolers. You could use that on a standard system, or you could use that on an overclocking system, or a high-powered system like mine. I'm running a Core i7-980X right now. Both those coolers will work perfect on that system. Some of those are a high-mass design. Some of them are a high-surface area design. It's just a matter of how much heat you're going to be putting into the system and what kind of performance you want to get out of it. That's where the CW rating is going to come into effect. A high CW rating is going to be a less efficient heat sink at a given heat load, and a lower number is going to be a more efficient heat sink at a given heat load.
1: You can just use that number to match up the heatsink to your particular system. So that's why it's so important to do your research and read reviews like the ones at Ninja Lane.
0: Darren, did you hear that Microsoft's going to be giving away Windows 8 for $40? $40?
1: That's been all over the news. And I have to tell you, I'm actually pretty excited about it. It looks like Microsoft is moving over to a model that's very similar to what Apple's doing, which has its good points and its bad points. But the good point is Windows 8 for 40 bucks.
0: You know, I think you're really tied up on the whole $40 aspect of it.
1: <laughs> How so?
0: Well, I see it as being Metro has gotten some bad press because it's a totally touch interface in a mouse and keyboard world. We have the business aspect of it. You know, you don't have these big screens that are going to be touching around. It's like, Think about it. Answering email by touching. Right. You can't really do that in a business space. You can kind of do it at home, but not really in business. Okay. And a lot of people are starting to attack that, or I'm seeing that people are starting to attack that. Microsoft is replying by saying, well, we're going to give it to you for $40. And on top of that, we're going to give you a tablet.
1: Oh, the Surface.
0: Microsoft Surface. And there's two versions of it. There's the Ultra version that comes with an Ivy Bridge and then the lower-end edition that I believe comes with the Taker 3. But both of those things are going to be released to reinforce Metro and Windows 8. And if you can't afford to buy one of those tablets, then for $40, you can get the OS and try it out.
1: There may be some truth in that, Dennis, because I can see the advantages of getting this into people's hands and letting them discover that it really isn't as bad as maybe they think it is because of the touch. But I have a different theory. All right,
0: tell me, what's your theory?
1: I think that the $40 price point is about getting it in people's hands, Mm -hmm. but not so they can try it, but so we can go the app store route.
0: Uh Uh-oh, microtransactions.
1: Microtransactions, pay to buy, free trials, the whole nine yards, just like the Amazon store, the Android store, and good old Apple. I think Microsoft is taking a gamble that if they give you this cheap operating system and they link it to their app store, whatever that may be, that you're going to buy apps. And that's how they're going to make up the cost.
0: Could be. Don't they have something similar on the Xbox right now? You can get it off alive. Of
1: they do. And in fact, one of the things that I see that isn't getting as much press, at least in the mainstream, is the convergence of the Xbox, the tablet operating systems, and your computer into one sort of home entertainment, maybe even cloud system that's all going to drive you towards these Microsoft apps. And I think you talked about that a little bit from E3, the ability to control your devices from your tablet. Interface your computer with your PC and your Xbox and the whole nine yards.
0: Right. And there was one aspect of that that was missing to tie all that together. And I think it was released a couple of years ago called the Kinect.
1: Oh, yes, of course. Now, we all got a little bit excited about the Kinect, but in practice, it's a little hit or miss. But I know Microsoft is really driving to move the Kinect into the PC space. I think that might be kind of back to that whole touch interface. We all have our PCs, our monitors, but how many of us really visualize reaching up and touching that screen?
0: (laughs) Not very many people. And that's my argument in that Windows 8 cannot really be used in business Mm -hmm. because the business aspect is all about sitting in your little cube, have one or two monitors, and it's not cohesive to being able to reach your hand up and then move things around. I mean, it's not like the minority report here where he, <laughs> you're going through movies and trying to figure out what's going on and throw something off the screen. Cause you, you don't want it anymore. Business doesn't work that way,
1: but it's cool.
0: It is cool. I think it would work great for multimedia. And like, you know, if you're going to be editing the podcast or putting a video together, you can actually drag those pieces together and connect them with your fingers, mm-hmm. which is something that you would normally do with your mouse. Perfect for home use. I think it hands down. That's where it's going to be in the connect will make it more fun. It'll be something where you can bring the PC into your living room. You can have a projector behind you going onto the wall, and that's where you're playing your games, where you're watching TV. Say, oh, I don't like that. Pull up your finger, do some gesture, change channels. I can see that as being great, but that's not really a PC anymore.
1: Well, see, now I see things a little bit differently. I've been seeing the rise of multi-monitor systems, the iFinity, all that sort of stuff. And the trend that I'm foreseeing, and we'll see if I'm right, is you'll have your large, fancy multimedia monitor, or two, or three, and then you'll have your small touch panel that's the only thing that you interface with that touch screen on. So you have your mouse and your keyboard, mm-hmm. and then you have your little touch panel. Maybe it's only a 19 inch, or maybe it's like those art tablet interfaces that we used to have where you can write on the mouse pad. The but- Wacom. Yeah, something like that, where you're going to have sort of a hybrid. Now, I'm not as excited about the Kinect, because to me, it's the same as reaching up and touching your screen. You're doing a lot of gesturing, maybe getting tired, maybe just not enjoying the whole arms-up activity. But if you put that on the desktop or a small monitor that's just in arm's reach, it's there. You can interact with it and still have your more traditional PC space.
0: True. And that small screen will probably be the Surface.
1: Ah, and there's your Convergence again. Yep. Taking that tablet, and wouldn't it be cool if you could actually set that down and use some sort of hybrid mouse on it as your mouse pad?
0: That would actually be pretty fun. To that point, though, I have the Asus Slate. I've talked about it in previous podcasts. Right. We're recording the podcast on it right now. I take that thing traveling with me. It has an HDMI port on it. You can plug that into the flat panel TV in the hotel room. The problem is I have a touch interface on the tablet, but I can't drag that touch interface to the screen that I have plugged in.
1: Oh, yeah. It
0: doesn't allow me to do that, so I have to use the mouse. And at that point, I'm not touching anything anymore. If I duplicate the screens, then I can touch. But then at that point, I'm not gaining anything. I don't have any extra screen real estate. I just have a bigger screen. Maybe that's what Microsoft is after because, you know, let's face it, the Surface is pretty small. Yes, it is. It's smaller than my, my slate, to be honest. How can you get to use this Surface with greater ease?
1: Because I think that's the big question. Is it the connect? Is it the Touch? Is it an Xbox controller? <laughs> <laughs>
0: that, that's the question that we'd probably have to ask Balmer. And it seems that he's playing his cards pretty close to his chest right now, especially with the announcement of the Surface surprising all of the hardware partners that, let's face it, they make the PCs that Windows runs on.
1: There's been a lot of speculation about why the Surface and why now, but I think it really boils down to the fact that Microsoft is aware the market is changing away from the traditional PC. They know that they've got to get that Windows 8 acceptance, not just in the tablet space, the PC space, the phone space, to get that total convergence. And really, I think that's where the future is.
0: Unfortunately, I think you're right. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast please consult our show notes if you have any questions drop by the forums or email us at podcast at ninjalane.com to stay up to date on the latest at ninjalane please subscribe to our rss now available on itunes follow us on twitter or join us on facebook this has been a ninjalane production copyright 2012 thanks for listening